Our scripture reading today is from the first book of Peter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing our study of strangers like me, ripped directly from Disney's Tarzan, but one of the greatest theme songs to any Disney movie. I know many of you have already looked it up, and you all agree with me. But we are going to be looking at the beginning of chapter 2 today. And the reason we've entitled it Strangers Like Me is because we've learned over the last couple of weeks that Peter is writing to a group of Gentile believers that are living in exile. So they're living in a place that is not their own. Amongst people that are strangers, but at the same time exactly like them. Because we're all human beings. And so as we approach this letter, we are reminded that you and I, if we are in Jesus Christ, we are strangers in this world. And yet we have a responsibility to interact with all of humanity. And share the love of Christ with people, whether they be believers in Jesus Christ or not. And Peter, as he opens up this second chapter, is writing to a group of people that are experiencing strange feelings, strange emotions, being set apart in a place where they are uncomfortable. And he is writing to them to remind them that God is in control. At the very end of chapter 1, Peter encourages everyone that he's writing to to have a sincere brotherly love for everyone around them. Now the problem with this is you and I are raised in the Western Hemisphere. And in the West, we all read into the Bible as if we're all individuals. But the majority of the world is not an individualistic society. That is very much a Western Europe and an American belief. Peter is writing to a church that primarily thought in terms of what is best for the group is what is best for everybody. But you and I don't think that way. For the most part, we think what is best for the individual is what is best for me. But we have to remember when we approach this text that he is writing to a group of believers, a church, and the majority of New Testament letters are written not to individuals, but to churches. So in light of Peter's teaching to us today, we ask ourselves this question. What is Peter saying to First Baptist New Orleans this morning? 
What is he saying to us collectively as a body of believers? Now, yes, we should always examine what the text means to us as an individual. But primarily today, I want us to look at what Peter is saying to us as a church. And he begins by saying, there are these characteristics that should not describe the church. In the context of brotherly love, he tells us at the end of chapter 1, the following characteristics should not describe the church of Jesus Christ. Envy, slander, malice, hypocrisy. All of these characteristics cannot describe a church of Jesus Christ that wants to reach people with the gospel. So we define some of these terms. Well, what is slander? It is speaking out of turn or inappropriately about another brother or sister. What is envy? It's desiring what somebody else has. Hypocrisy is doing one thing or saying another, or saying one thing and doing another. Malice is hateful intent towards other people. Deceit is misrepresenting the truth. And what Peter says here, let these characteristics not describe you, church. So let's examine our own hearts. Where do we stand on these issues that Peter talks about? Well, unfortunately, we fail. We're all guilty of falling prey to these sins because we are all human beings. But what Peter is saying, if the church is doing all that it's supposed to do, these characteristics will not describe it. So we examine our hearts. And then he says, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now this is an image of an infant. I'm not a doctor, but I know that if a baby cannot have milk, it is going to be very, very sick. It needs the nutrients from this milk. It needs to have it in order to thrive and in order to grow. And anytime a mother has difficulty producing milk or a baby does not take, whether it be breast milk or whether it be formula well, we know that that baby suffers. And Peter is using this analogy here. The pure spiritual milk for you and I is the word of God. Now the danger is looking at verse 2 and thinking that what Peter is saying is that all that matters is that we long for the pure spiritual milk when we are new believers in Christ. And if we read that into the text, we are missing what Peter is saying. We should crave the word of God. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Now everyone in this room has cravings. I want to share with you my craving of choice. It is double stuffed Oreos with a glass of milk. If you bring to me a package of Oreos and it's regular Oreos or if it's mega stuffed or if it's birthday flavored or red velvet cake, I'm going to politely say thank you and then give them away to someone. I only partake of double stuffed Oreos with a glass of milk, five to ten a night, depending on how much I've eaten during the day. There are moments when I'll ask myself this question, as much as I would love to eat lunch, that might mean that I have to reduce my Oreo intake. So sometimes I make a decision to pass on lunch, 
to pass on an afternoon snack, knowing that at the end of every day, after I put my children to bed, I sit in my chair and I have my five to ten Oreos with a cold glass of milk. That is what I crave. You have cravings as well. You don't have to share them with me like I just did with you. But here's what Peter is telling us here. And I want to speak to you candidly as your friend and as somebody who loves you and as one of the pastors of this church. There is no substitute for being in the Word of God. A five-minute devotional with a reference to a Bible verse, while helpful, is not enough time in the Word of God. We need to meditate and pray over and study and memorize this book as if it's all we have in this world. I personally have literally hundreds of lyrics to songs memorized. Secular songs. Songs that do not help me in my walk with God in any way, shape, or form. If I can spend that type of time listening to music and memorizing songs that don't matter at all, then I can spend time memorizing the Word of God. If you're going to tell me that you don't have time to study deeply in the Word, I'm going to encourage you to reprioritize your time. No one is expecting you to spend 18 hours in the Word of God every day. God doesn't expect that of you. He doesn't require that of you. But to think that we can just spend a few moments every morning and think that that is enough for us to grow in Christ the way that we need to, we are fooling ourselves. I can't put a number, I can't put a time limit on it because that's not the point. But the Word of God should be a priority in our life. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word. And then in verse 3, Peter says, If you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is a conditional statement. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, more than likely you are spending time in the Word of God. It's a check for all of us to ask ourselves, what are the things that we put in front of our time with the Lord? As much as I love my Oreos, there might come a point in time when they even have to take a back seat to studying the Word of God. So we crave the word of God, Peter tells us. And then, you know, Jesus also eliminates the religious language of the day. Because what Peter does is he tells his audience here that Jesus represents everything that they had previously thought could be taken care of within the religious system. He calls himself the living stone which is a reference back to the Old Testament. And we're going to see, especially in this passage, that Peter goes back time and time again to the Old Testament, referencing these passages. In the very same passage that he would say, crave the Word of God, Peter wants to show his audience that, hey, I'm not just telling you this. I'm going to use these references in my Scripture references here to show you how important it is. Psalm 118.22 talks about a living stone that is chosen and precious in God's sight. That living stone we know is Jesus. And he tells his readers to be living stones because they are also chosen and precious in Jesus' sight. 
We are living stones as the church of Jesus Christ. And here's what he does that is just absolutely amazing. He tells his audience that you are now a spiritual priesthood. You are the living stone, and you yourself can make sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Now, why is this so radical? In a Greco-Roman context, in the first century, every god had their own temple, and every temple had their own priest, and every priest expected sacrifices of its followers. So imagine a Greek person walking up to a Christian here in modern-day Turkey, And saying, where is the temple to your God, Christian? Well, these Christians in exile said, actually, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. And he resides inside of us. And then they would ask, well, where is your priest? Who is the one that accepts sacrifices on your behalf? Well, Jesus is our priest. He accepts sacrifices on our behalf. Okay, one more question. Where... When you make sacrifices, who is the one responsible for accepting them? Well, Jesus was our sacrifice. He is the one-time sacrifice for us forever for our sin. This is not what a Greek or a Roman person would expect. Because every god had their own temple and had their own priest and had their own sacrifices. And what Jesus is saying is, I accomplished all of those things for you. And now this religious structure that you are following no longer matters. We don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. And that temple resides inside of us. You and I do not need a priest to go and confess our sins to. The Bible tells us that there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. I bring my sin before him alone, and because of his sacrifice on the cross, it is finished. This was radical. For Peter to say this to people that are in exile, in a place that is not their own, surrounded most likely by Greek and Roman temples where people were going to make their sacrifices The Christians did not have to do so because Jesus resides in their heart. He eliminated the religious structure of the day. Jesus is also the foundation. And here he quotes Isaiah chapter 28, 16. In the context of Isaiah 28, God is making a judgment on Ephraim. He is punishing them for their disobedience to him. And he's telling the Israelites, do not go after these foreign nations. Do not go and worship their gods. Trust me that I will send a cornerstone and he will be the foundation that you need. Now this cornerstone that Peter talks about here is Jesus himself in the context of a foundation. So what Peter is saying is, the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ, is Jesus himself. The pastor is not the foundation of any church. The building is not the foundation of any church. The programs that we promote is not the foundation of any church. The songs that we sing are not the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ is the foundation of this church and the church globally. 
And so we put our hope and our faith in him. He is the chief cornerstone. The one that will make everything be the way that it is supposed to be. He continues on and he references yet another Old Testament passage. This is what he says. Psalm 118.22. In the context of that psalm, the Davidic king goes into the temple to give thanks to God for his victory over their enemies. But in the context of Peter, what we see is that the builders who rejected the cornerstone, it was the enemies of God in the Old Testament. But here for Peter, it is the religious authorities. It is the Sadducees. It is the Pharisees. It is the scribes. They were the ones who had the Messiah right in front of them and they rejected him because they were not expecting a Messiah who was going to come and suffer and die for people's sin. They were expecting a Messiah who was going to come and overthrow the Romans. Jesus, over and over again in the New Testament, tells his audiences that he is the temple but yet the religious people never understood it. So we're going to do a whirlwind here through the Gospels. And I want to show you all the different ways that Jesus talks about how he is the temple. We're going to go quickly. John 2.19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Mark 14.57 and 58, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Matthew 26, 59-61, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And then, in all three synoptic gospels, this is what it says. I'm going to borrow from Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. What is the significance of the curtain in the temple tearing? Because when Jesus breathed his last breath, it proved that the priest that separated the Holy of Holies from the people was no longer needed. So that veil in the temple is torn in two, showing all of us that we can now have direct access to Jesus. You don't need me to forgive you of your sins. In fact, I can't do it. It's impossible. The New Testament teaches that when the curtain was torn in two, we can now approach Jesus on our own and tell him what we have done. And if we are in Christ, he will forgive us every single time. He is the foundation. And last, we see that Jesus is not popular. This kind of goes against what we want to believe because as we share Jesus with people, we really want them to buy in to what we believe. But the reality is, Jesus is not very popular. In fact, Peter tells us, referencing again Isaiah, that the stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
What is so offensive about Jesus? Well, in the context of Peter writing, remember the Jewish people thought that the Messiah was coming to save just the Israelites. And when Paul is transformed and begins to write his letters, he begins to talk about how actually the Messiah came for all people, both Jews and Gentiles. This was not a popular message among many Jewish people. In fact, it was offensive because this Messiah was only supposed to come and save them. But in our day and age, Jesus is offensive for different reasons. Let's just take one of the most common phrases that we often use to talk about Jesus. Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow after him. Take up our cross, meaning we will experience suffering, persecution, rejection, ridicule if we follow after Jesus. Not a popular message. Not something that a lot of people are just willingly signing up to do. Take up our cross and then follow after him. If you're going to follow after somebody, what that means is you're going to submit to their leadership. Remember over the last few weeks we talked about how in the Western world especially, we live in a highly individualistic society where personal freedom trumps everything else. No one should be allowed to tell me how to live my life or what to do. But yet, Jesus actually tells us, in order to follow after me, you have to submit to my leadership. You have to give up your freedom in order to be freer than you've ever been before. Remember the fish illustration that I've been giving you the last few weeks. A fish technically is more free if it is outside of water. It can go wherever it wants to go. But in about five minutes, guess what's going to happen to it? It's going to be dead. But when a fish is contained within a body of water, it is actually more free than if it's outside of water. Freedom is not the absence of constraints. Freedom is choosing the right constraints. As human beings made in the image of a holy God who created us, we are more free by following a life that he designed for us to live then we are trying to do it on our own. Follow after me, Jesus says. And then, to submit to his authority is difficult because we live in a world where we all have authority issues. We don't like being told what to do, where to live, how to behave. But yet, followers of Jesus are called to submit to his authority. This is not popular. This is offensive to the majority of people in our world today. So how do we communicate lovingly and compassionately that the way Jesus designs for us to live is the way that we should live? We show them by how we live our lives. We show them that even though we submit to the authority of Jesus, we have freedom to love unconditionally, to forgive 70 times 7, and people will be attracted to us and to our Jesus by the way we live our lives. Jesus is not popular. Not today. And it's our decision 
how we go about communicating him to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family members, and to those that we hang out with all throughout the week. People are designed with a void in their heart for God. And we're convinced, based on the reading of this book, that Jesus is the only one who can fill that void. I read a story just last week of a missionary in Central Asia. And him and his wife were doing some work in the kitchen, and they saw through their kitchen window their 11-year-old boy out in the distance being approached by a gang from the neighborhood. They knew these guys were tough and that their son was in trouble. They were too far away to get to him. And so they just watched this transpire. One of the members of the game picked up a rock and held it over his head like he was about to stone the 11-year-old boy. And then a few minutes later, the boy dropped the rock. The 11-year-old ran home, and his parents met him at the door, and they embraced him, and they said, What happened? Why did these men approach you and want to stone you? And the 11-year-old boy said, They asked me if I believed that Jesus was God's son. And I told them I believed it. And they were enraged. And they began to pick up rocks. And they were getting ready to stone me. And I told them, you can stone me if you want to. But if I die, I'm going to heaven. And that's better anyways. And this gang dropped their rocks. And the 11-year-old boy ran home. And he shared this story with his parents. This is a young man who understands that God is in control. You know, Peter ends this passage here by saying that they disobeyed and they stumble as they were destined to do. What do we do with what Peter is saying here? Are there people destined to not obey the word of God? If we're going to be honest with each other this morning, as we look throughout the entire pages of Scripture, we know that God chose the Israelites over and above other nations. They were not the only nation at this time. And he appointed that their enemies would face destruction and that they would have victory over their enemies. And he appointed that Jesus himself would go to a cross and suffer and agonize and experience pain All of these things happened with God knowing about it. Because one of the key characteristics of our God is that he is sovereign. This means that nothing happens outside of his control and that he has authority over everything. So as we read this, we see that there are people that will not believe in Jesus Christ. The whole world is not going to come to faith in Christ. But here's the reality. You and I don't know who those people are. We don't know who's going to come to faith through Christ and who isn't. So in terms of our evangelism, in terms of us sharing the good news with people, it doesn't affect us at all because we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and we ask that the Holy Spirit soften hearts and he will work according to how he sees fit. Just because there are people that will not believe in Jesus does not mean we get to decide who they are. So we faithfully go about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others because he is sovereign over everything. 
Now, why would Peter include this in the context of his letter? Remember, he's writing to people that are in exile, that are experiencing unfamiliar situations. And he wanted his readers to know that in spite of the fact that they are going through some uncomfortable times, suffering, persecution, rejection, know that God is in control. Things do not happen to us without him being aware of it. It never catches him off guard. So when that tragedy strikes in your family, when that cancer diagnosis comes, when that tragic car accident happens and you are not in any way, shape, or form expecting it, you can rest assured that even though you are in pain and heartache, God is in control and that he is sovereign. He is the foundation. He is the word of God and he is our hope. We all live in exile. Some of you in this room are local New Orleanians. You've been here your whole life. Some of you have moved in for various reasons. And if you're new to the city, more than likely, you feel like you are in exile. But over time, God remains faithful to his covenant people. If you are in Christ, rest assured that God is sovereign. Whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're enduring, God knows. God cares, and God loves you. Let's pray together. God, we confess to you this morning that we cannot live this life without you. We want to evaluate our hearts this morning, just like Peter asked us to do. Do we have deceit? Do we have malice, slander, envy, hypocrisy in our hearts towards anybody in this room? That we would confess it. That we would ask your forgiveness for it. That we would evaluate whether or not we are craving the word of God. Help us to make it a priority in our lives. We submit to your leadership. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sin. Everything that we have is because of you. We are completely sufficient on your grace and your mercy. Spirit, speak to us now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.